Symbolism is the language of the mysteries. In fact, it is the language not only of mysticism and philosophy, but of all nature. For every law and power active in universal procedure is manifested to the limited sense perception of man through the medium of symbol. Every form existing in diversified sphere of being is symbolic of the divine activity by which it is produced. By symbols, men have ever sought to communicate to each other those thoughts which transcend the limitations of language. Rejecting man-conceived dialects as inadequate and unworthy to perpetuate divine ideas, the mysteries thus choose symbolism as a far more ingenious and ideal method of preserving their transcendental knowledge. In a single figure, a symbol may both reveal and conceal, for to the wise, the subject of the symbol is obvious, while to the ignorant, the figure remains inscrutable. Hence, he who seeks to unveil the secret doctrine of antiquity must search for that doctrine, not upon the open pages of books which might fall into the hands of the unworthy, but in the place where it was originally concealed. Thus the truth was engraved upon the face of mountains and concealed within the measurements of colossal images, each of which a geometric marvel. Hello and good evening. I'm Douglas Bowles and you're listening to 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and thesyncbook.com, a weekly conversation with the interesting artists and thinkers of the day. You can find us online at 42minutes.com and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. Today is the 6th day of January, and this is the first installment of the 42 Minutes Man Show. So manly, P. Hall, that is. Tonight we kick off this month of shows exploring Manly P. Hall's secret teachings of all ages, a classic since 1928, this masterly encyclopedia of ancient mythology, ritual, symbolism, and the arcane mysteries is like no other book of the 20th century. It's a legendary codex to the ancient occult and esoteric traditions of the world, and for the next month, 42 Minutes, we'll explore this this great book a few chapters at a time. Tonight, Justin Morgan and I will look at the first three proper chapters, as well as a peek at the Freemasonic symbolism chapter, and probably at the art. Justin Gray Morgan is an artist, designer, and illustrator living in Oakland. He's been a professional artist for the past 15 years, and has done work for clients like Eminem in the recent past. Mr. Morgan has also designed a number of covers for the Sync Book, as well as initially setting up the website at thesyncbook.com. More information about his work can be found at justingraymorgan.com. He has appeared on this program a number of times, and we are happy to have him back. Hi, Justin. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Doug. Thanks for having me on the program again. You bet. It's great to catch up with you. It, it feels like it's been it's been too long. So let's just start right off the bat. Have you read any Manly P. Hall before I asked you to read these three chapters? I've actually read the whole Secret Teachings of All Ages probably around 10 or so years ago. Um, and then I've revisited it fairly often. Um, it's such a dense book, and some of my knowledge of the esoteric subjects contained within it has changed. So it's almost... It almost seems like a different book each time I sit down to read it. And what was this time like? I mean, it's not like I asked you to read the whole thing, but I did ask you to look at the the first three chapters after the introduction. 
Yeah, well, it was nice to revisit it. It it was something I'd kind of forgot about the first three chapters. You know, the headings of the chapters are the ancient mysteries and secret societies. Um, I hadn't really noticed or remembered the subheading, which said, which have influenced modern Masonic symbolism. So my knowledge as far as Freemasonic studies go has evolved over uh, the past couple years, and especially since my first time reading this. So it was interesting to revisit this uh, from that perspective and kind of see how that tied in and, and yeah, how that all fit together in a new way. So I'm curious, do you, do you, okay. So this was my first time reading this and I found his introduction to be too dense and kind of boring because it was, uh, he put what he, I guess, a history of, philosophy is the introduction and so i thought if this is what this is going to be like oh i really kind of <laughs> put my foot in it but i enjoyed i really enjoyed the writing it was really readable and i and it was fun i enjoyed these three chapters but do you detect that he has a lens that he's he's interpreting these things through that comes through in all the book there's an aspect of his writing which i think um makes it much more readable but maybe not discredits it, but kind of uh, makes it a little lighter as far as it being taken like really serious seriously as a as a research book. But personally, I enjoy that he writes in almost uh, a narrative kind of way instead of just saying like, uh, for instance, like in these first chapters, you know, he talks about the Druidic mysteries of Britain and Gaul, um, or like the uh, rites of Mithras. And rather than just saying who, what, when, where, and why, he kind of begins to weave almost like poetic language into explaining how uh, initiation might take place. So his, his language is very kind of colorful and uh, interesting. And to me, to me, I enjoy that. It, uh, it draws me in, you know, and it gets me kind of imagining, you know, what would it have been like to experience uh, uh, the Eleusinian mysteries or, you know, rites and, uh, initiations. And so I enjoy that, but then at the same time, sometimes that isn't taken quite as serious in like really academic esoteric circles. Um, do you think that it's that the veracity of what he's saying is, what am I trying to say? Do you think it's all BS or do you think there's some truth to what he's saying? No, I think there is a lot of truth. I think there's a lot of truth to what he's saying. You know, my, if I was to ballpark, like how much of this is like actually accurate, I would say, you know, 70 to 80% of it is like pretty close to being accurate. Um, I think he, it's such a mess. It's such a massive book, you know, and just what's covered in the first three chapters, which are all these ancient mysteries and ancient secret societies. He's covering such a broad range. It really is. Uh, it it would take you could spend a lifetime researching just one of these subjects, and part of the problem with researching esoteric subjects is that lots of it isn't founded in what we would call like scientifically provable reality and so you can begin to speak about like when they existed when the secret societies existed where they were located but that would all be dry you know that would be very boring to read about 
But then to go beyond that and say, well, what were the actual esoteric philosophies of these societies that were supposedly kept everything secret under, sometimes under literally under uh, the penalty of death, then where are these sources coming from that he was reading in order to get this? So I think you have to take that when studying any like esoteric subject, you have to take that with a grain of salt because lots of this stuff wasn't supposed to ever be written down, ever be recorded, ever be repeated. So the people who were breaking these oaths or somehow sneaking in were kind of fringe characters. And these weren't written by the, the central people in the Druid secrets or Druid society or initiatory rites weren't writing books about it. So you oftentimes get like an outsider's view on it rather than authoritative, scholarly, central person really writing about it. Because by nature, most of these things weren't weren't written about, weren't to be spoken about. And so overall in the book, there wasn't he does he does cite people or he does like quote people. You know, he quotes Albert Pike a number of times or he quotes uh, different uh, Masonic writers or things like that but it doesn't have footnotes like an academic like a textbook so you have to wonder you know where where was he getting this information about all these secret societies and stuff in his introduction he's saying this is kind of a response to materialism so he's feeling like the western mind is kind of overpowering any sense of mysticism or mystery which is interesting because I definitely perceive a Western mind in what he's doing. And one of the things I noticed uh, in the, the first portion that I've read is that he's really trying to find a lineage of the mysteries. That yeah. in his mind, things develop, they start at A, and then they move. So there isn't, so some of those mystical ideas about uh, ideas happening at the same time or psychological um, structures in our brain that manifest the same things no matter where we are. So like one of the things that I always think about is this idea of the pre-Columbian, you know, the mythic structures that are in both the Western world and the, the pre-Columbian. There's just certain things that manifest in, in human beings as far as mythologies go. And and uh, let's see if I can get to a question here. <laughs> uh, did did you detect kind of this Western mind in in his work as far as you know saying you can see how this secret society informed this other secret society that came after it? Yeah, I, I know what you mean. It's you, to take a step back as far as my own perspective on it, like growing up you know, you're introduced to, uh, Western religion, you know, we weren't like a very religious family, but we'd go to church on occasion and you're introduced to that as kind of what I would even consider just a Western religious mythology. And then I was much more entranced by some of the Eastern re religions because there was more of a o overt mystical nature to them, like with Buddhism and, uh, Hinduism and, you get like the Zen aspect of Buddhism or even Taoist philosophy. There's more of this direct, uh, direct approach to like the higher power or God or whatever you would want to call it. Whereas, and so then after studying that for years, you gradually begin to become aware of, or I gradually began to become aware of the 
Western esoteric philosophy where there's this more mystical approach to um, to Christianity or to uh, kind of like Kabbalistic thinking or hermetic thinking where but there there was more of an undercurrent underlying that uh, so I think a lot of a lot of society, secret societies and stuff want to claim the lineage of a, some kind of direct connection going all the way back to Egypt and then perhaps even if there were actually civilizations before that, that they want to have this, like, to claim this lineage, you know, it's almost like claiming a bloodline that you're like a direct descendant of these true, this one true original kind of secret society or mystery school. Um, And in some ways, you know, I think it's hard to prove a very direct linear connection all the way back to whatever that source was and and actually like whatever that source was is kind of lost in the sands of time uh to in some regard but i I think i also look at it in the same way that you know we know more about ancient egypt now than we did 200 years ago so although we aren't linearly connected back you know although we're further away than we were two or three hundred years ago due to new information coming around and science and technology being able to look at it from an archaeological standpoint, we have a better idea of what was going on back then now. So I think you see the same thing happening with some of these mystery schools that sometimes scrolls or writings or things were lost. And so it kind of can skip a generation or skip a hundred years. And it doesn't necessarily mean not to say that it wasn't, but it doesn't mean that there was a secret word of mouth thing passed down all the way through over hundreds of years there's yeah i'm wondering if maybe it was the mason chapter where they were talking about yeah it was the mason freemasonic symbolism it looks like it's i don't know my roman numerals way towards the back of the book but yeah that the craft existed before the flood and they didn't want the mysteries to perish and so they engrave them symbolically in two pillars of stone yeah there, there's kind of like a recurring idea of this i guess they call it pre-diluvian or like before the flood that somehow there's like this uh <clears throat> idea that there was some it's almost similar to like a garden of eden type idea that in the past somewhere there was this perfect kind of society or there was like this really advanced society it gets into like the idea of atlantis or things like that where there was somehow this perfect thing in the past and then there was a catastrophe that disrupted it and you see that kind of as like a recurring theme through mystery schools and i i think on some level i think there's a danger in looking at this type of information from a literal standpoint in the same way that christians think that the bible is literal you know because there, there are some fundamentalist Christians who believe there was a man and a woman in a garden and a talking snake 5,000 years ago. I think we can fall into the same trap that somehow we've saw that that wasn't accurate, but then we begin looking at this stuff. And then when people are writing about Atlantis or this flood or these pillars that we can be like, oh, that would, well, that was a literal thing, you know? And I think that we don't want to be fundamentalist esotericist would be kind of a <laughs> there's a strange dance though that happens with occult texts and 
literalism. Yeah. And, and I think people want to believe in like a magical kind of thinking, you know, like I think reality in itself is, a, is you know, I'm not devoid of that kind of thinking. I think reality in itself is a very magical thing just to be alive in the first place and be conscious and experiencing things and interacting with other people and seeing the sunset or, you know, pretty much everything is just like a, being alive is a magical, wondrous thing. But I think people also crave in the same way that I think people look for conspiracies as some sort of narrative to tie things together. Not that there aren't thousands of conspiracies that are literally, uh, true, but that sometimes people find comfort in saying, well, there's a grand underlying overarching conspiracy of people that are controlling stuff. I think then there's some tie in of almost said, this is like, there are these people, there's like the school of light or the people who are keep the secret keepers of truth who somehow have passed down the sacred knowledge and are still existing today. It's almost the anti-conspiracy, you know, like, that there are these people with this good sacred knowledge that have been overseeing everything and overseeing people's uh, evolution. And not to say that that isn't true on some level, but um, as far as it being like a direct narrative and a literal, as a literal, to be taken literally as historic, I think you you got to kind of walk a fine line between that. Yeah, I might actually be the biggest culprit of this, but it's it's really hard for me to interact with what I perceive as the Gnostic cosmology because it seems like there's an overemphasized value of the spirit over the matter because the metaphors debase matter so much. So in in our reading, um, I think it's the Eleusinian Eleusinian mysteries. Yeah, the Eleusinian uh, mysteries. So in in those. Persephone is perceived to be the metaphoric soul. And so she actually is going into hell, which is flesh on some level. And so the, the, the ritual of the initiate is to return to the light of the patron goddess, which is great. Like, as far as a ritual goes and a metaphor for overcoming your lower material nature and 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 having uh enlivened spiritual life but if you take that literally as you know life is base i i I oftentimes have a difficult time with gnostic philosophies and i did i didn't um actually end up seeing a lot of gnostically interpreted myths in this yeah in in these first three chapters there certainly is an aspect of that and kind of just going through the headings, you know, the first part is about uh, druidic rites, you know, so you get more of this, uh, the uh, what is now England and Britain, you know, there were people who built Stonehenge and druids up there and they had a particular kind of rite of passage. And then you have uh, Mithraic rites, which is more of the Persian uh, and Southern European rite. And then... You do get into the Gnostic stuff, uh, Egyptian stuff, um, the Odinic or like Norse mystery schools. Um, and then part three. So I, I really like the 
there's something powerful about that myth, uh, Persephone and the underworld. And you see this as a recurring theme through what he covers in each of these different sections is the idea that it's kind of basically could be summed up as the fall of man being that there was man existing in this perfect, perfect spiritual world, you know, entirely energy, no matter. And then somehow there was a fall, you know, and that's kind of even a reoccurring theme from like being cast out of Eden of that you, and to me, I take Atlantis as a metaphor. I don't think there was a literal physical Atlantis anywhere and that you have this perfect society or this perfect place or this almost heavenly type realm. And then you somehow have a fall down into matter. And then that matter is this unconscious kind of thing. So I, I think there, there's one Rosicrucian idea where it's saying that, and it kind of ties into the two pillars of uh, the two poles of the Kabbalistic tree where one is light and one is dark. And then you have a middle pillar. And so the light one is more of like a luciferic thing. And it is more of the idea that spirit isn't of this world. You know, it wants to take you higher. Like it's the light bringer and you want to literally people who have drug problems and things like that want to feel high. They want to feel this more like spiritual kind of energy and want to feel some escape from the material world. And that can also be done with, uh, mystery schools that can be done with philosophy. And then there's more of a uh, uh, satanic, you know, not in like a Christian sense, but as far as like a, a set or the Egyptian God of night and sunset of that matter is what it's all about. And you get more of a sensual celebration of, of sense pleasures and things like that. And to me, I think that's where I think what he's writing about is, accurate as far as some of these mystery schools that's what they believe but as far as my my personal philosophy i think more of a middle of the road thing is better to where you balance spirit and soul you know i think soul comes from like the lower level whereas spirit is like this higher kind of enlivened light type of thing that i don't totally buy into the idea that stuff was perfect and we fell down and now we're just in the shitty world and we have to do things to escape it you know Sure, life is tough lots of times. The matter is that you know, the body is is going to grow old and feeble, and it's going to be a heavy kind of rough way. But it also, I, to me, I take the middle of the road, that it isn't just spirit falling down into matter. It's also matter rising up into, uh, into spirit. So then it seemed like three of the tales that he told Persephone Dionysus and Orpheus they all kind of weave in the underworld but as a, as a tangent what do you, what do you make of the Orpheus story I've been thinking every we we spent a little bit of time with it last year because the, the latest arcade fire is all about this kind of orphic journey to the underworld where they compose this whole series of uh, song cycles about it ends up being based on Orpheus, but it was Black Orpheus, the, the film. What do you think the message of that story is? I mean, so he goes, he go, he follows, he goes to hell to retrieve his, yeah. his, his dead girlfriend and don't look back. That myth has always kind of haunted me. 
for some reason because I can just see it so vividly almost as like a movie or something where they're, yeah, you go down into the underworld, into hell to rescue uh, Persephone. Yeah. And no, it's Eurydice. That's right. Yeah. And so then they're escaping from hell, but they give them, you know, the one requirement is that you don't look back. And it's literally as Orpheus is almost, I, I can just imagine him like seeing that going through the tunnel out of hell and just beginning to see the light and heading towards the light and just that there could be howling demons, you know, clawing at them behind him, trying to pull him back down. And he's just going and just headed towards the light. And then at the last minute, right before they take the last step out, he turns around and then she's just, she was right behind him the whole time. And then these things just grab her and pull her all the way back down into the depths. So there's that, there's that aspect of the story. Then the other side of it is the connection and what you were saying in regard to it being an album of Orpheus's connection to music and being kind of a god of music or patron saint of music. So I think the stories like that are so rich that there there's a lot of different meanings. To me, on some level, I think that it speaks to some aspect of the creative process of going through this dark, sometimes in your dark aspect, you find creative energy in there. And you have to delve into, you can't just only be on the sunny side of life that oftentimes artists are tortured and have to dig through the muck and the negative energy and things like that in order for the creative process to kind of bloom. So I think music like something like the blues, you know, where her music born of pain sometimes is some of the most beautiful music to me, it encapsulates this idea of Orpheus being this God of music journeying into the underworld and experiencing that loss a second time. Yeah. But it is a haunting one, you know, cause it, I just think of that and it's like, would you be able to do it without looking back? You know, would well, you be able to... as you were telling the story, I wondered if it wasn't so like, I mean, stories are great cause you can see them as characters, but then if we think about it as allegories, maybe this is, I mean, it was thinking about Persephone as a soul, so maybe his wife, Eurydice, is, is like this anima or soul component, and that he just needs to be confident in his actions. Like, there's this kind of... So why did he need to see her to believe that she was really there? They said, she can come out, but you can't see her. You just have to believe. Yeah, I think it it speaks to aspect of of life of where when you let doubt enter into your mind especially during like really critical moments that that can be what defeats you you know so i think on some level it it speaks to that because essentially if you was almost out of the cave or the tunnel if he had just waited one moment longer he would have known if she was there with him or not so i i think sometimes it, these like the story of Icarus, yeah, Icarus flies too high and then crashes into the water. We aren't supposed to look at it and model our life after Icarus. We're supposed to look at the mistake that was made by the person in the myth as far as it being something that then applies to our life. You know, it's not to say, well, you should live your life the way or, you know, carry out a similar process that Orpheus carried out. It's like, he made this mistake. Don't make that mistake and don't doubt 
don't doubt that yourself, you know. One of the one of the other stories he recounted was the story of Dionysus or in the Roman Bacchus. Um but it's interesting because in the version that I knew before the the Titans destroyed him because of Hera. Zeus cheated on his wife, had this baby, and she's like, Oh, that's not gonna do and so they destroy the baby, but the Titans do. But then Zeus took a piece of his heart, which was, and then put it in this pomegranate, and that's the pomegranate that um, Hades fed to Persephone, and then Persephone had Dionysus again. And so then he came out of hell as the god of uh, wine, which which incorporated all this interesting stories together. And But this his interpretation was really Gnostic, I felt, like this time, that... Uh, I wonder where I got that. Like of the stories, that was the most Gnostic. His, he was calling it the Bacchic Rite Mystery School. So throughout these these first three chapters, it kind of covers a bunch of ancient mysteries that are no longer around, whereas uh, later chapters about Rosicrucianism or Freemasonry or things are still around in some form or another, but these were all these kind of ancient mystery schools. And I think part, part of a recurring theme through his recounting of what influenced the philosophy of each of these mystery schools was that it was based on this kind of solar energy of this kind of uh, passing of the seasons. And so he, he, in, in the very beginning of it, he, in the very be- beginning of the first chapter, he was saying, you know, that these, all these myths were presented to the general public, but that then the, where the mystery school came in was right. this further, deeper interpretation of these myths. And maybe you could I- explain e- esoteric versus exoteric or the later or lesser and greater mysteries. Yeah. So uh, esoteric itself means hidden or, uh, kind of walled off or uh, secret in the sense that it isn't exposed and disseminated like wide, widely. And exoteric is more on the outside of the wall the out, where that's what is, is told to the masses. So th- I think it is worth saying in the beginning there was, he did cover that the esoteric meaning of these myths is powerful and it's meaningful and it's something uh, important and that you don't want to just you want people who are good natured and have a good heart and good character and virtuous and whatnot to be the people who are kind of the keepers of this. You don't want to give give this myth out widely to uh, or the deeper meanings of these myths out widely to people who aren't kind of worthy to hear. Them. Um and so I think there could be some debate about that. That's just to sum up what his his philosophy is that these mystery schools were important because they kept this deeper meaning sacred rather than kind of profaning it by giving it out to kind of the ignorant masses. And so that's where you get the dichotomy of the exoteric version of these myths were more just like seasonal practices. And you find a, a similar thing like, with Christianity, which more people are familiar with, where some people literally think that 
like I said, that the Garden of Eden was a physical place. Well, the Zeitgeist, the movie, took that kind of exoteric myth then that's on all the myths and said, look it, yeah. there's no truth to this religion. It's merely the the 12 friends are the, the Zodiac, and it's just a story of the sun. So you have Jesus and Mithras and Dionysus, and they're all born on the same day. You fools. Yeah, and so you, you, there's two ways of looking at that. Then you can say, well, that means that Christianity is false and you should just throw that all away. Right. Or you could say there is a deeper story about what the sun is and that the plants and animals and everything that is alive on the earth is actually some form of solar energy combined with earth energy that's regulated by lunar cycles that is alive, you know, like on on the most basic level, solar energy enters into plant life, which is then eaten by bugs and birds, and it moves up the food chain. So this energy that comes from the sun, or as some of these esoteric philosophies would say, they come through the sun from like a deeper, deeper source in the universe, then becomes like manifest on the planet and alive. So you could look at it of like, oh, well, it's just a story of the sun making a its passage through the sky, or you could say there is some, and what that's what these uh, rites begin to hint at is that there's some deeper meaning to the passage of the sun through this, and how you know mo- most of these uh, there's kind of a conflict as far as mystery schools and philosophies based on um, location on the earth as far as you get a totally different kind of philosophy from people who live around the equator where there aren't seasons and there isn't as much of this cycle of going into the underworld. Whereas if you live in the, if you lived in the Nordic countries or in England or most of Europe, you know, you, you could potentially die during winter and especially further North, you know, you really only get a couple hours of sunlight a day towards the, towards the winter solstice. So there is really this thing, there's this aspect of life of, the sun going into the underworld and everything dying off and being bitter and cold. And uh, so there's some conflict between the mythologies of, you know, in most of the Islamic countries and in the middle East, they don't have a winter, you know, same like mythologies of Africa. You don't see as much of this whole underworld thing as far as it being a part of an annual cycle. And, and you do begin to see that in, so you could say, well, each of these mystery schools is carrying on passing the torch, or you could say they're basing it off, they're looking at the same thing, and then they're basing it off of something real that they're experiencing, and there doesn't have to be like necessarily a direct passing of the torch between the, the different schools. All right, so one of the thoughts that I was having, the passage that I read at the beginning implies that the mystery... so. Like you said, a lot of these sources aren't there. If the initiates were talking, they weren't supposed to, and they would have been bad initiates anyway. And then Manly P. Hall is saying sometimes you have to infer what the mystery is by the things that they, you know, you can see the symbol, the symbolism of the statue or the temple or whatever, and then you have to decode what the mystery is from that. And so then in the in the masonry chapter they're talking about the symmetry of the body and you know they're talking about 
the head and the height a tenth of this and it because my brain doesn't work that way it just turned into gobbledygook but have you ever have you ever really as an artist now let's say have you looked at proportion of like the human body and thought about symmetry and then my question is do you think that's a product of nature so that symmetry is going to come out of human beings because in our purest nature we're symmetrical creatures and we seek beauty or do you think there's there's um, something to the idea of the, the master mason and knowing intentionally knowing and then hopefully this leads to a conversation about art but knowing the the harmonious pr proportion and then executing it my my take on it and he he does kind of delve into i guess in particular you're kind of talking about uh there's this idea of the temple of solomon and similar to like we we were talking about uh atlantis or different things was it an actual place you know is there really any evidence of the temple of solomon or what is it some kind of metaphor for something you know and to me my take on it is that it's more of a metaphor for the human or the the soul and your spirit and kind of some sort of metaphor for the body and it's easy to doubt you know when you look through the bible there are very specific uh numerical things about how many laborers there were, how many cubits wide it was, and you get into the proportions. And I think it's easy to kind of miss some of the more simple aspects of proportions in regard to the human body where you do have, there are definite proportions and symmetry is a big aspect of the human body. The other one, the main kind of governing proportion of the human body is phi or the golden ratio which is 1 to 1.618. But we most commonly are familiar with it as uh, like the Nautilus spiral or the Fibonacci sequence where you start out with 0 and out of 0 comes 1. 1 plus 0 is 1. 1 plus 1 is 2. And, and that goes on to build this, these, this spiral, spiraling out pattern. But if you, look at, if you look at a human, the ratio of your hand to your forearm is based on the golden ratio or the ratio uh, from your belly button down to your belly button up is based on uh, the golden ratio. And you find that proportion all through, uh, all through the human body. Um, but then you, if you look into nature, if, you know, if you cut an apple in half, it also has five seeds. Like it has a little star pattern in there and they call five, they call it phi and five is based on the phi ratio because if you take, uh, it's kind of hard to visualize this, but if you draw a little star on a piece of paper, the line of one of the arms and then the center portion of the line in relation to the rest of the line is based on phi. So that's where the number five comes from. And you see that proportion all through nature. You see it in pine cones. You see it in a nautilus shell. You see it in the way from looking above at plants, the way that the leaves spiral, spiral, spiral around to uh, catch as much uh, sunlight as they can like you see that all through nature and we're not we're not totally divorced from that we're a part of that so you to me that's the more meaningful like proportion inside rather than really delving into the minutia of how many cubits and the same thing with noah's ark and stuff like that they just tell you all these proportions and it's really kind of mundane and you're not really a lot of people have made scale models or tried to reproduce 
Solomon's models of Solomon's temple based on these proportions or illustrations and blueprints of it. And you look at it, like I've seen some at like the Freemasonic uh, library in San Francisco and you're like, it's a beautiful drawing of it, but it's like, what does that mean? Like it doesn't really, the symbolism of that I think is lost. Well, we're coming to the end of this. Sure. What are the secret teachings? <laughs> well, there. I think what this book and what the mysteries and stuff are kind of trying to do is what most religions and philosophies and things have tried to do through through the ages, and it's kind of answering the questions of like, who are we? How did we get here? And what do we do when we're here? And then what comes after this? So I think most of these, not even just this book, I think that's what most religions and most philosophies and most mythologies kind of try to address that, you know, where do, where did we come from? And, you know, according to this, according to this, it does take more of this theosophical kind of idea that, there was some fall of man from this angelic type state into the world of matter. I don't, to me, as I mentioned before, I think it's more of meeting in the middle. I think it's more of a middle road. I think there's some, I think, uh, I like the idea that we're amphibious, that we're like half animal, half angel. You know, we have an animal nature, but then we have an angelic nature. And I don't think that you can say the angelic nature is better or that the animal nature is worse or even that the animal nature is better. I think there's a reason to me, and it's kind of to speak to what you were saying of having a bit of a problem with the Gnostic thing of that this is a prison. You know, I think there's some, I think it's a middle ground and maybe to tie it in, that's kind of the symmetrical aspect, not just physically, but there's some sort of symmetry between this angelic nature of man that deals with mythology and art and language and imagination and creativity and this animal nature, which is, it's a beautiful thing, the cellular processes and respiratory system and nervous system. And, you know, it, it's a, as far as we know, the human body is the, and human brain is the most sophisticated thing we, we've found in the universe, uh, the most complex thing. So you can't just totally dismiss to me, I think it's, there's some beauty in it and that it isn't just a cold, concrete prison that the spirit fell down into. Well, that was 42 minutes. Thank you for sharing it with us. You've been listening to Justin Morgan on SyncBook Radio, a production of thesyncbook.com. Information about the work of Mr. Morgan can be found at his website, justingraymorgan.com. For more information about the SyncBook, our guests, to check out our shows, or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and visit our website at 42minutes.com. If you'd like to support the show, we urge you to become a donor. You'll find the donation links under each episode on the website, and consider setting up a monthly charge. Thanks so much, and these little ones must be fed milk, but meat is the food of strong men.
to share.